Dear listener, thank you for downloading and listening to this episode of The Other 14 Podcast. This podcast was recorded after Game Week 5 and Game Week 6 of the Premier League season. We decided to delay the release of this episode as the date it was going to be released. Tragically, we heard of the passing of Her Royal Highness Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II. In addition to this awful news, Game Week 7 of the Premier League was also cancelled and postponed. As such, we have released a shortened episode. And next week we'll be discussing what happened in Game Week 8 of the Premier League season. Looking forward to Game Week 9. Welcome to the Other 14 podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Other 14 podcast for the 2022-23 Premier League season. This is the podcast that forgets all about the so-called Big Six and focuses on the Other 14. It's been a busy seven days of Premier League football, with each team playing twice. We've had a huge 19 games involving the Other 14 teams, but even with 35 goals to shout about from the Other 14, VAR once again has been the main talking point. We've also had our first managerial sacking of the season with Scott Parker's 55-game tenure as Bournemouth manager coming to an end. We'll be guesting to all the main talking points from this week. And, as always, we are joined by Tom. Hi, Reese. Tom, it's been a big week of results and we've had a huge amount of goals. But why can't I wash this sour taste out of my mouth? Well, may I suggest some Listerine, Reese, or some other fire-based mouthwash products? Uh, yes, our first round of midweek fixtures did lead to Brighton and Newcastle both losing their unbeaten records. Good effort for both teams, but alas, we look to next season for the chance of another other 14 Invincibles team. Scott Parker also recreating Frank De Boer's efforts in the Prem and only lasting four games before he was given his marching orders. But yeah, as you mentioned, quite simply, is this the worst week of VAR since its inception? It certainly looks that way. And officiating this league has a lot to answer for. A lot of head-scratching, decisions, some vital points lost to those unfortunate sides and the wrong side of VAR this week. And the PGOMOL, that's the referee's body, effectively coming out and saying their officials got it wrong. Did someone say amateur hour? Yeah, Tom, I think you've hit on all the main talking points there, which we'll definitely go into much greater depth on very, very shortly. But first things first, over to you with the classified results. Here are the classified results from match week five of the uh, Premier League 22-23 season. Crystal Palace 1, Brentford 1, Fulham 2, Brighton Hove Albion 1, Southampton 2, 1, Leeds United 1, Everton 1, 2, Aston Villa 1, AFC Bournemouth 0, Wolverhampton Wanderers 0, 6, Nottingham Forest 0. West Ham United 1, 1, 2, Newcastle United 1, Leicester City 0, 1. And here are the classified results from match week 6. Everton 0, 0, Wolverhampton Wanderers 1, Southampton 0, 2, Fulham 1, Newcastle United 0, Crystal Palace 0. Brentford 5, Leeds United 2, Nottingham Forest 2, 
AFC Bournemouth, three. Two, West Ham United, one. Aston Villa, one. One. Brighton Hove Albion, five. Leicester City, two. Tom, that is a huge amount of fixtures, a huge amount of goals and some brilliant results in there. I'm looking at that and I am seeing fantastic results for Brentford against Leeds. Jesse Marsh wasn't particularly happy with that result. No. And Bournemouth, unbelievable comeback against Forest, considering they only recently had a new manager given to them in the middle of the week. Yep, big up Gary O'Neill. Good comeback win that for Bournemouth. Absolutely. And obviously we've had some other fairly disappointing results. Speaking of which, Tom, I would like to play a spot the difference game with you to start off with. Oh, So, I would like to compare the Hatton Garden robbery with with the state of refereeing this game week. So, in both, a group of old men got together to plot a scheme. In both, incompetence got them caught. In both, they stole something of great value. And... They both pleaded guilty when they inevitably got caught and identified for how <laughs> awful they are. I can't spot is... one difference there. And what is the main difference there, Tom? Michael Gambon wasn't involved this weekend. Michael Gambon wasn't involved this weekend. That is a very good point. <laughs> and the point that we're able to make light of this is actually quite sad because of how awful VAR was this week. And to be honest... I say VAR, and everyone will say VAR, VAR, but it isn't VAR, is it? It no, is not really. incompetent officials. We had some absolutely huge decisions made, some awful decisions made, and then afterwards they've come out and gone, oh, yeah, I, get, I guess we did get that wrong. But looking at Newcastle, looking at West Ham, looking at Aston Villa, these were big decisions made that have gone against the teams and that is the difference between zero points, one point or or three points in these instances. Exactly. And it does kind of make you lose faith in the refereeing standard in the Premier League because they're blooming awful, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's been a discussion point for a good number of years now specifically talking about VAR and as you've mentioned it's it's not so much the technology because clearly the technology is there it's available and we are using it and as, as far as I'm concerned technology being used for the betterment of the sport to make sure the decisions are the correct ones is only a good thing however it's the idiots in charge that just ruin it for everybody so let's talk about these individual cases this weekend. Um, the West Ham disallowed goal against Chelsea. So in this case, it's the uh, Maxwell Cornet finish, um, at, what, at which point Chelsea were 2-1 up at the time and West Ham would have then gone on to have got an equaliser. However, it was a judge that Bowen had tackled Edouard Mendy in the build-up to that goal. Um Tackle? I didn't see a tackle. Did you see a tackle? Sorry, you're telling me that I need to take down my GoFundMe campaign for Edward Mendy's um, injury uh, support fund because the way he acted, I thought 
like Bowen must have shattered his arm into numerous pieces. R.I.P. Edward Mendy. Well, and also I assume that that's what VAR saw or the officials saw because, and they're going to be contributing as well because he seemed to have somehow really got injured from the lightest of contact and maybe Bowen is just incredibly strong, but I didn't see a foul. I saw Bowen running through to the ball. Mendy makes the mistake of overcommitting. He parries it out poorly. Bowen is still running in. He tries to jump Mendy and his the top of his boot I'd say grazes Mendy's arm but Mendy seems to be reenacting a war film with the way he was rolling about squirming as if his arm had been lopped off or something and then yeah. Corne wonderful finish but then they go and review it and you kind of think okay they're going to review it we've got video technology they can just go and look they'll be able to see the amount of contact and they'll go actually no don't think that's a foul. The goal should stand. However, they came up with a different result when they had a look at it, didn't they, Tom? They did. And it, it's just astonishing because, you know, I, I don't know who the um, video assistant referee was for the Chelsea-West Ham game. But as we all know, those video assistant referees, they are sitting in, you know, a very sort of quiet room watching the matches at Stockley Park. They're not in the atmosphere of the, of the stadium at the time. They're not sort of being hounded by fans upon fans and then sort of managers and sort of bench um, and the benches on the sides. So they've absolutely no sort of external pressure sort of beaming down at them. So they've absolutely all of the time in the world to make this decision. And yet... Everyone else can see that that is no way near a foul, and yet they come up with something completely different. I, I, it just it is it is astonishing how bad the refereeing standard is in this country. It's just it's got to a point now where something has to change. Yeah, and I think I think if we're looking at the actual incident, the contact made. I don't. No one's denying that there was contact made, but. When you listen to the post-match interviews by, by Declan Rice and Antonio, they both made different observations, but both valid ones. Antonio has said, well, if that contact is made anywhere else on the pitch, is the referee blowing up for a foul? No. And then Rice made the observation that if Cornet had proceeded to launch the ball into row Z rather than putting it into the top corner, is the ref going to give a free kick for that contact? The answer is no. They've exactly. only made a big deal because partially I think goalkeepers are this protected breed for some reason in a physical game. Apparently they don't like being physical. But even then, the contact was so minimal. If you look at that contact compared to, say, during the same game, Reese James kind of kicks out at Antonio, but nothing was done. There was no review. And in theory, that's violent conduct. He should have been given his marching orders, in theory, if they're basing the same level of physical contact. But instead, they've got this made-up contact and level of aggression and injury in the foul that just wasn't there. And no one can see it, apart from also Thomas Tuchel. But in all fairness, yeah. I don't blame him. As a manager, and you've been had that decision in your favour, you're not going to start criticising referees. But oh, he, no. I, I assume he will in a couple of weeks when the sort of decision goes against him. And then yeah, the other decisions from the weekend, um, I suppose we want to look at Newcastle. And how yeah. they had a goal 
bafflingly struck off in their fixture against uh, Crystal Palace, which was yeah. incredible game, by the way. So many chances, so many shots. I think it was over 40 shots. 43. The goalies had a blinding game. Both Nick Pope and Goita, fantastic games between them. But there should have been a goal in the game. And I'm sure you've probably had a look. But um, Dermot Gallagher actually had a look at this on RefWatch today on Sky Sports News. What did he have to say about the decision? Well, I mean, basically said it was incorrect. Um, let's let's look at it. So it's, it's Joe Willock um, on... Guaita. Um, I'm trying to remember who put the ball in the back of the net. Was it? It was, it it was, an, it was an own goal in the end, wasn't it? Oh, it was, an, it was an own goal. Yeah. So it was Joe Willock, uh, potent, supposedly fouling Guaita. Um, although rather noting, and the referee in this case, Michael Salisbury, made the correct decision at the time, and he noted, I think, that there was no immediate foul. However, VR has then gone and picked up the fact Willock is supposedly of fouled Guaita, um, and Michael Salisbury in the first part actually makes the correct decision and sees no foul in the build-up. However, um, and I think he does see the the push from Tyrick Mitchell on on Willock that actually pushes Willock into Guaita, but for some reason Lee Mason on VAR decides to bring Michael Salisbury over and says, we think you might have got this wrong. Is he blind? All Does I he not see that push? All I know is that his golden retriever was being a very good boy that day. Um, oh. it, you're right. Because when you do the freeze frame of the contact between Willock and Gaeta, it does look like Willock has run full speed at Gaeta, wiped him out. He's not had a chance to get the ball. And then the ball's ended up in the back of the net. Looking at that freeze frame, you'd go, "Yes, it's a foul by it's a foul by Willock, no goal." But you need to look literally five seconds beforehand, not even five seconds, a second, two seconds beforehand, and you can see that Mitchell is all over Willock's back and gives him a hard yeah. shove. So that would be the first foul, which should have been in theory a penalty. Willock then goes into Gaeta, which they've then given the foul for, and then. Obviously, the balls then ended up in the back of the net because it's bounced off of uh, someone's shoulder pretty much. Yeah. But in a game that almost deserved goals with the amount of efforts, it's just astonishing how we've got this video technology, which clearly they can use, or apparently they can't. It just seems like they need to literally rewind, almost as if they're rewinding an old VCR. Yeah. And, but instead... They see the contact and they focus entirely on that, but literally missing out the essential bit beforehand. But then yeah, I think and... actually if you were to isolate that, and this is where I think the whole amount of issues around amount of contact made is interesting, because I think had that cross come in and just sailed over everyone and Willock been pushed in the back by, by Mitchell like that, I don't think a penalty would have been given based on the standards of the like the amount of contact that referees now need in the box. Well, because we are talking you... about this high threshold, aren't we? So exactly this high threshold, but it is every day of the week. Willock is prevented from getting to that ball by being pushed in the back, and yeah. Newcastle have walked away with one point there, and they should really be claiming all three. Well, and exactly, considering yeah. and considering they've been on a fairly strong winless run at the moment, where they've got a couple of draws 
um, and then losing to Liverpool in the 98th minute midweek. I, Eddie Howe must feel like the world's against him because they deserved that win. If either team had won, you would have gone, oh, they deserved it. They created a lot of chances. But Newcastle did get the ball in the back of the net and they have been absolutely robbed and it's a disgraceful decision. Yeah, I mean, shocking, beyond terrible, scandalous, disgrace is just some of the words being thrown out this this week um, in regards to that. And yeah, like you said, Newcastle have been wrongfully denied a valuable three points there because like you said, we've, they've, they've, as we've discussed um, over the last couple of weeks, they've been playing well, but just not necessarily picking up the results. And that's just one win in six now. Um, which you know had that had that goal been rightfully given, then we'd be sort of talking about a different situation here. But yeah, just rubbish, all rubbish. I'm just ah, angry. <laughs> it is because they have these checks take so long, and I want to say I think it was maybe the Forest game on Saturday where there was a five minute VAR check. I don't get how any decision takes that long because either it's, it's not clear and obvious, though, is it? Yeah, it's either clear and obvious, and you make the decision there and then, or like there's no there's no decision that should ever take that long, and it be no. clear and obvious. So it's ridiculous that he was called over to the screen. Well, actually, no, it's not ridiculous in the Newcastle incident that he was called over to the screen because there was something to look at. But it's the fact that he then on the screen was given the wrong information to look at. Exactly. And what's and, that going to do to a new, a new referee's confidence? You know, this is a relatively inexperienced referee and he actually made the, the correct decision, but he's been called over by a more experienced referee and said, in, in effect, you've got it wrong. Oh, he's been massively let down there. And it'll be interesting. To dry. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see because recently um, Howard Webb's been bought in, hasn't he? Is a fairly oh, leading role in PGMOL. I'm pretty sure he has. And it'll be interesting because he is one of the best referees we've ever had. Look at the oh, games yeah. he's look at the games he's gone he's, on to uh, referee Champions League finals, World Cup, final. World Cup finals. Yeah. He is unbelievable. And maybe he's just got a bit more experience in the calm head and he's been I suppose he's been away from the game through the introduction of VAR. Maybe he has a different outsider's perspective and hopefully that will change it. Um but Eddie Howe should be unbelievably upset with that. I've not actually heard his post-match press conference or interview, but if it's anything like David Moyes, who was absolutely seething. Um, yeah. But w- what I found amusing is that Rice was hypercritical in the West Ham game after the match. Moyes was. And very shortly after, it got immediately um, immediately released, going, oh, they'll they'll be facing no uh, repercussions for their comments. <laughs> So Good. quite quite clearly, they knew they messed up very early yeah. on to be able to go. Oh no, we shouldn't punish for the, punish them. Yeah, <laughs> saying that if they did, it, that's just that's just adding fuel to the fire. Oh, exactly, and I think it was a completely fair criticism. Um, but then you say PGMOL have come out and gone. Oh, it's it's a bad decision. That's that's not any help for West Ham who need points who played well. They played well. It looked like it's going to be a hard run of fixtures for them playing Tottenham and getting Chelsea. Getting four points from those two games would have been huge rather than getting just the one. And they probably deserved in both games, actually, they probably deserved more than just draws in both. Yeah. And the third refereeing gap I want to talk about, I'm sure you've got more to mention because there's almost an archive full from this weekend, was the decision that went against Steven Gerrard's Villa team um, at home to Manchester City. one all late in the game. Coutinho has played the ball from 
an onside position. He then goes and rifles it into the back of the net. But about half a second before he launches the ball, the referee blows up because of the linesman's flag. And this is where they get grief around inconsistency because you've seen enough games, I've seen enough games that of recent, the new under VAR protocols, the new decision is that if a player is played through and the lino thinks they're offside, they'll let the play play out and then they'll flag. And that's typically what it's done. We've seen numerous cases of where a player has been a good couple yards offside played through and they still have to play through that phase. And then if the goalkeeper collects it or they miss, the lino will then flag and it's brought back by 20, 30 seconds to when the ball was initially played through. Yeah. However, in this game, it seems that the protocol wasn't followed because the lino moved his arm with the flag up to flag offside quicker than a cheater on cocaine because it was absolutely rapid, the speed in which he lifted that. And also, Coutinho was clearly onside by quite a margin. And yeah. at that point, because the referee's blown because of the offside, the game has stopped. So then even when Coutinho's launched it into the back of the net, it's then can't even be reviewed by VAR to look at it because the Linos decide to just have a moment and disregard all of the rules that everyone else assumes is in place. It's another shocking decision. And three points for Villa would are invaluable right now. And to get them at home to the league champions who are on fire at the moment, another instance of inconsistency that only gets you wound up when you look at it. Yeah, exactly. Um, as far as my understanding goes with this referee's flagging, is it also the case that if it's a clear offside, I'm, I'm talking like several, you know, it's it's you know, there's no right or wrong. That's just going to be offside. Then they can flag. If it's questionable, then they are being told to keep their arm down. I'm sure that's the case, but the amount of times where I've seen ones where it is obvious and yeah. they keep their flag down. So when one is, I'm gonna I'm gonna give the assistant referee some benefit of the doubt and say. Well, if it's close, he should have then kept his flag down. But it wasn't close. Coutinho exactly. was miles on side. It wasn't side. close at all. Yeah, it was miles on side. You know, he's a, he's a good sort of yard on side there. And I think in fairness to the referee, he did wait as long as he possibly could um, before he actually blew up. But he's obviously seeing that his assistant is waving, you know, as you would do for offside. So he, he does then blow his whistle. But then obviously by the time that Coutinho has taken the shot, the whistle then goes... And then it's putting Edison off potentially. So there is the, the, the question about whether or not had that passage of play ran through as it's supposed to, whether or not Edison would have actually made the save. But still, it's just a complete and utter gaff by the referee inside. And I, I don't think that's VAR's fault because VAR can't be introduced in this case because the referee's already, already blown his whistle. But the early flagging has completely removed yeah. the ability to exactly. use the video video assistant. exactly so it, it's it's not so much a i'm not it's not so much a downside on, on var as we've already mentioned it's just the general standard of officiating in this country whether it's the main man on the pitch or the two uh two guys running up and down the line I suppose the one way where you could say oh var has influenced that situation is the fact that there's now this supposed grey area of when linesmen should flag. 
do they wait for ages and then make the decision or yeah. and let the play play out or do they flag straight away? Like if you'd gone back six, seven years pre-VAR, the Lino flagging then, everyone would have gone, oh, Lino's flagged and that's it. But now the fact that if he had delayed and followed what we understand to be the protocols, VAR would have been able to be used and yeah. come to the right decision that regardless if he had gone in or not, the shot would have stood and to be honest, it's an unbelievable hit from Coutinho. It's a great, it's a great goal. Yeah, it's just, just vintage Coutinho. Um, and he's got he's got previous against City with, with those sorts of strikes. Um, and like we've like you've mentioned and touched upon, is that would have been a valuable three points for Stephen Gerrard and his side, because they were very much in the ascendancy in that game, and it's been taken away from them by again just really poor officiating. Absolutely dreadful officiating. But this week we've had quite a big go at the officiating standard in the country. Was there any good officiating this weekend? Because there were lots of games. So did is there any level of redemption for the refereeing team? I did see one redemption, uh, and that was just a generic good use of VAR. It might not necessarily have been good on the officials. However, it was the Embuemo goal against Leeds where... The guy was clearly on sides, and that's the technology proving him to be on sides. And the goal, which was disallowed by the on on field uh, officiating team, has then been correctly overturned and and given as a goal. So that's VAR being used correctly, and that's the officials. Even though, because official at the end of the day, officials are human, so we're all going to like you make mistakes. And the linos can sometimes incorrectly flag for offside. But the whole point of the technology is to is to back them up and say, okay, you're human still, but we will come out in force with you to help you in situations that it's quite a tight call. And to be fair, it was kind of a tight call, but the technology has proven and promo that he was yeah. on the side oh, and the goal in, given. In, in that in in that instance. It was because this was the case where the ball was played on, and Ivan Tony went for the header, missed it, and then it came off the defender behind him, and then went on to Mbomo. Is that is yeah. this the incident? Yeah, and then he ran through and put it away. And in which case, if it had come off Ivan Tony, I think at that point he was in an offside position, but the contact was made by the Leeds defender, so he wasn't in an offside position. So he's absolutely fine. Yeah, I think in general, sort of like how can we? As fans, what do we want out of VAR? How 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 can we make it, or how, in what aspects do we want VAR to improve, or to, to some form of officiating in this country to improve? What what do we need? Well, I suppose if you just look at what we were promised, we were promised there to be fewer mistakes on big incidents, and I'm sure there are statistics behind it and show that maybe there's a lot more decisions that they are spotting. But I suppose they've got to understand and the referees need to understand that now, because they have the assistance of technology to be able to review absolutely every moment, any gaffe they make is going to be highly criticised and highlighted immediately. And they're going to get a lot of stick for it because it, let's say pre-VAR, these three decisions that happened, you would have gone, Oh, the ref, in the instance, oh, he saw Willock's contact with Gaeta. Okay. He's seen Mendy crawling around as if he's been stamped on. That's fine. And then, oh, Coutinho, the linesman thought it was borderline. 
and he's flagged, you'd kind of, in all those instances, you'd go, look, that's what they saw in the split second. That's kind of okay. You wouldn't disagree with them too much. But when the fact that you have someone whose job it is to look at a screen and then play it back any number of times and then give what could be what should be the correct decision, of course people are going to be critical when they have the technology available and refuse to use it in a competent way or whether they're not able to use it competently because they're not competent themselves. So, yes, yes, I'm sure VAR and the implementation of it has produced more accurate decision-making process but these big blunders are going to be criticized even more and they need to be getting them right they almost need to be up to our nailing it 100 percent of the time and looking at this weekend it, they were very short of the mark here's something i did think up on a whim um, okay so you know in... is, it, is it hang on is this a dragon's den moment are you asking for investment for a share of your business um, yes, I am. Okay, pitch it to me, please. I'll do my best right. Duncan Bannertine impression. Right. So you know how in cricket and and of recently that um, the on-field umpires, the decision to give front foot no balls has been taken away from them and is now being given to the third umpire. Okay. So with offsides, I think the Linos sort of task. He's, he's got so many things to think about with, with regards to offside. Why not take that responsibility away from them and then give him or her the opportunity to act like an extra set of eyes for the referee in that half of the pitch to leave offsides purely to VAR? I like that idea, but I suppose my my thinking would be is that in the game, as it plays out, there are so many cut and drive offside decisions that if it was given to VAR every time, we've seen how long VAR decisions take that if you're then sending every one of them, whether it's half an inch or three yards, if they're all going to be made decisions going to be made by VAR, then there's going to be a lot of added time played on at the end of every game. If yeah, if it is. was a quick if it's quick like I think they're trying out automatic offside decision making process using AI and robots and stuff aren't yeah. they um, I've read about that if that works completely agree with you I, don't know. I, uh, I think but I it's... think it goes to show there just seems to be no logic coherence or consistency with what's yeah. going on this... and yeah a, a lot of people will say oh you need ex pros involved maybe you do but we've had plenty of really good referees in this country. They just, none of them seem to be about at the moment. And I don't know whether they had the opportunity to be a bit more lax going, oh, well, VAR will pick it up. But that's just not good enough. They need to have the mindset that imagine VAR is not there and they will only pick you out if you if you make a, a, a clear, obvious error. Yeah. And as we've said, some of the referees this week and were thrown right under the bus with the, with the way the referee hold up in a cupboard in Stockley Park made their decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, VAR is getting us down a little bit and the refereeing standard is getting us down a little bit. So because we're suckers for punishment, let's be a bit reflective and look at what did we get wrong last week? Oh, boy. Wow. 
So let's start, as we mentioned in the introduction, that we have unfortunately seen our first manager of the season lose his job, and that is Scott Parker with Bournemouth. So after getting three points from Villa, Arsenal, Liverpool and Manchester City, he was then given the sack, which I think everyone understands. He wasn't given the sack because of the results, but because of the way he came out afterwards and spoke about what the decisions the club were making with regards to transfers and that the squad wasn't good enough. And he very much, he got given the boot because of that. I don't think we were unfair in what we were saying, Tom, saying that he should be given more time. No. And I still stand by that. He should have been given more time. But then in the same way that West Ham replaced Scott Parker with Gary O'Neill in the West Ham midfield in the 2011 transfer window when Scott Parker went to Spurs. (laughs) Oh, I didn't see that link. Bournemouth have brought in Gary O'Neill, or rather kept Gary O'Neill, but pushed him up the pecking order. And first game in charge, they had a fantastic comeback against Nottingham Forest and won the game. So how wrong were we? Oh, God, that's an incredible symmetry. I did pick up on that. It's amazing. Um, yeah, we were we were quite wrong, weren't we? Um, I Like you said, I don't think we were wrong in our sort of statements or um, analysis of where Bournemouth go after the 9-0 defeat to Liverpool. I think, like we both said, it would have been harsh for them to make a change at such a point after such a horrendous run of fixtures. But I think, you know, we've, we've clearly seen from the Bournemouth statements uh, that have come out in response to the, obviously the, the news that's come out this week, that it clearly wasn't on results. There's been some form of falling out really between those in charge and Scott Parker, you know, we mentioned the comments um, in the pod last week that Scott made in his in his post match um, interview, and it was sort of surprising. It did sort of grab grab your ear a little bit. Um, him sort of saying that the squad isn't good enough, um, and yeah, he wasn't he wasn't surprised. I think was the word that he specifically said about the result. Um, he was so, incredibly honest and incredibly brutal. And, it was yeah, it was, but, it was, and it was I do kind of. Yeah, and I do get how that can rub the squad up the wrong way, and he doesn't really do wonders for the club's morale. But I still think he has a fair point that if Bournemouth are expected to stay in the league this season, I know they've then suddenly had one positive result uh, under a new manager, but I will still be surprised if they're in the league next season, just because their squad is very weak. Parker was not wrong about that. No, he he wasn't wrong at all about that. But I think you know Maxim Demin, who's the um, I think the owner of of Bournemouth, um, has basically said you know he's he's trying to run the club as sustainably as possible. They've got a new training ground on the way, um, or I think actually it has been built, uh, if I remember rightly. Um, I think I remember Eddie Howe seeing in a, like a a promo picture or something like that in front of it. Um, anyway. 
Um, and then it said also simply that they don't have the spending powers of some of the recently promoted clubs, i.e. Nottingham Forest, um, to go out and spend X millions and millions and millions of pounds on, on new players. So, like I said, there's obviously clearly been a, some form of falling out and that whether or not Scott Parker was completely up to the brief of what the expectations were this year. Um, the transfers coming in to the club have been fickle to say the least there's there's not been anything sort of that sort of grabs your eyes um so yeah it, I, I just think if that relationship isn't necessarily repairable between the two um then obviously the decision to go separate ways just has to be one so probably the benefit now is they've made that decision early on and they've got the effectively what was it it was after four games so yeah they've got a well, minus the two games that have already been played under Gary O'Neill, the the remain like thirty two games left to play, um, trying to sort of salvage their salvage their season. Even though at the moment I think they currently sit like what thirteenth or twelfth. Well, they'll now be on seven points because they've got that one result against Villa on the first game week, and then they got a nil nil at home to Wolves in game week five, and then they've got that incredible comeback against Forest to win three yep. two. So that's seven points. Then that's. That's actually looking like a really good start, but yeah, it's just how they're getting much the results that... against the teams. They're getting the results against the teams that they need to get the results against. But I suppose it's just how much is that that fabled new manager bounce, and is yeah. it sustainable? I'm not so sure because a small squad with not much experience over a long period of time will probably not survive the length of the season. No, no. but you know what they the board have set up their stall and gone look. We probably expect to go down, but we're doing it sustainably. So I suppose it's more for Bournemouth fans to say, well, what's the long-term plan? Where are we going to be in five years or so, rather than where are we going to be next season? So, Yeah, and but, I mean, from the from the Bournemouth fans as well, I don't think there's going to be a massive amount of loyalty to Scott Parker, even though they did he did bring them up. He was only really in charge of, what, well, like you said, what was it, 55 games? Yeah, so there wasn't so, a massive amount of loyalty there. No, not at all. And then another thing we got wrong... Um, we were incredibly positive about Newcastle and Brighton going unbeaten. After four game weeks, they were both having an absolutely fantastic time. And then, well, Brighton went to Craven Cottage and lost 2-1. And Newcastle lost in the 98th minute at Anfield after they had taken an early lead through Isak, their new multi-million pound signing from Spain. So. How wrong were we on that? I think, personally, we probably shouldn't have seen the Fulham result coming because although Mitrovic is on form and they are scoring goals, they're defensively quite poor and Brighton can take apart most teams. And they just had a really off day midweek. And then I really thought Newcastle were going to do it at Anfield and they were very close to getting that draw. But it was very late on in the game and it just kind of slipped through their fingers at the death. Yeah, I think, like you said, I think the the Brighton result against Fulham was more of the shock out of the two. Um, we did say last week that um, both of these sides could go into those, those games looking to pick up some form of result and both of them nearly did. So we were sort of technically right on that front. Um, but I think it's also a testament to both of these sides now where they are 
that we can say that. So we probably did put the jinx on it a little bit, um, but I, I don't think in the grand scheme of things it's going to affect these two teams that much. No, I, I think you're right. And to be honest, they've then bounced back with good performances. Yeah. Just a matter of days after Newcastle, as we've already covered, possibly should have got the win at home to Palace. And then Brighton, phenomenal performance at home to Leicester. And um, for the first time in their Premier League history, putting five past a team in one game, which is a really good effort from them. So The 364th time of asking. Wow. That's a lot of fixtures and that's a really good effort from them. Okay, and since last pod to this pod, we've had the closure of the transfer window for the Premier League. So we thought that it would be a good opportunity to quickly run through the teams in the other 14 just to evaluate how their transfer window went. So we'll be grading them standard school grades A to F, I guess, depending on what we feel. Starting off, we've spoke a lot about them in the preview pod in their signings of Diego Carlos and Felipe Coutinho, but Aston Villa then made some late additions of both uh, Leander Dendonka and Jan Bednarek from Wolves and Southampton, respectively. Are they good signings for them? I think when I was looking at this um, this Villa window, um, they've obviously got the deal done for Felipe Coutinho to come in and Diego Carlos think is that was done fairly. He's, he's, that was done fairly early but now he's sort of on a long-term injury isn't he he's like six months six months um oh i'm not sure if it's six but it's quite a long period of time it's yeah. quite a he will be period, out for a while it? so i mean I, w- I was looking at that and thinking uh sort of is that is that really it for villa you know that there's a lot of talk about that gerard sort of pulling power um so when if it was staying like that i was sort of going towards like maybe a d but then the additions of Dendonka and Bednarek on the last sort of couple of days of the window, I think that's raised it right up because they are two solid Premier League players, and I think that's only going to help Villa going forward. So I think that's probably raised it to probably like a, I'm going to say like a, a C plus. I say C plus. Yeah, I'll agree with you on that. Um, I think we looked at them first couple of games, and in the middle of the park they looked rough. So bringing in Leander Dendonka as a central midfield player kind of bolsters that a little bit. And also, as you say, they had Diego Carlos, him long-term injured. You could then see that Gerard wasn't sure who his strongest defence was. Mings was in, Mings was out. It's like he's doing the hokey-hokey. And then the opportunity to bring Bednarek in, um, I think Premier League experience just gives him another option for either a bit of squad rotation or just solidifying a more consistent back four. Um, and yeah, I'd say C+. I think without Dendonka and Bednarek, it would have perhaps been a little bit disappointing. But then I suppose some deadline day signings is very exciting for the fans, isn't it? So, yeah, um, yeah I'll agree with you. C plus on that. Then we have a team that hasn't done much business, AFC Bournemouth. So their big ins were um, good signing. I think in a, they've got a good couple of frees in uh, Neto, the goalkeeper from Barcelona. Yep. And then Ryan Fredericks, some Premier League experience from West Ham. Quite injured, though, but, you know, free transfer, can't really complain. And then they've also got in 
Uh, Joe Rothwell on a free transfer. Marcus Tavernier from Middlesbrough for 10 million. And then Marcos Senesi from Feyenoord. I think it's good that they've been able to bring some players, well, a player with Premier League experience and bolster the squad a little bit. But the squad is still very thin on the ground. And I think that's going to be a bit difficult for them to kind of, as we've just recently covered, hard for them to kick on and establish themselves any higher than having a bit of a um, relegation scrap this season. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all of that. I, I don't think Bournemouth could have realistically done anything more on the budget that they have. Um, but you look at that list and just think, is that really going to keep a team like Bournemouth up? And as we mentioned in the preview pod, I think we had Bournemouth down as one of the favourites to go down. I don't think that this transfer window changes any of those assumptions that we made. So, yeah, I, I, I think okay business, but nothing to sort of shout home about. Um, I'll probably say probably like a C minus. Yeah, I'm almost tempted with a almost a D just because yeah. of pe- just purely on the numbers basis that I think they just need more players. Yeah. And they've not got that. But they had a good couple of results, so maybe we're just very out of touch. Yeah. Next up, we've then got Brentford. Brentford's bigger signings. I'll ignore some of the loans and that sort of thing. But they've got in Ben Mee, free transfer from Burnley. That's a really good signing. Like uh, Damsgaard, supposedly the really future of like Danish that. football for 13 million from Sampdoria. Then Aaron Hickey, left back from Bologna for 14 million. And then Keen Lewis Potter for 17 million from Hull. After last season, I don't think Brentford needed to make that many additions. But where they have strengthened, I think it's been really good strengthening. Um, they've gone and spent just under 50 million, which I think is a good amount of money for a club their size. But I think the players they've bought in have uh, been really, really strong. Yeah, I, I think it just goes to show that Brentford have got at least some pulling power for those sort of names that have been able to sort of bring in. Uh, ben Mee was always going to come back up to the Premier League. I had no doubt about that. Um, so that brings in Premier League experience at the back. Damsgaard, I really like because he shone during the Euros and he's one of those players that sort of you were thinking about, you know, what what sort of club does he move on to next sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I really like in the business. I think I would probably go for, you know what, I, I, I think this is really, really good business for Brentford. I'm going to go for an A. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you, particularly as, I'm not sure how influential they've been in the game in their games so far, but Brentford have had a good run of games. They've had a good start to the season, and I think they've not run out and spent a lot of money or a lot of their Premier League money, but they've made some good signings and for the future as well. Damsgaard, only 22 years old. Everyone's spoken about the future he has. Wouldn't surprise me. A couple of good seasons when he's around 25, he could then go for big money elsewhere. Same with Aaron Hickey, Scottish lad over in Italy. A lot of talk about him and he had a lot of interest from other clubs. And then also King Lewis Potter, once again, 21 years old, very young. He could become a really phenomenal player that they can then sell on. So a good job from Brentford completely. And then next up, Brighton have made some transfers. I'm not... But I don't think they sorry, I don't think they needed to make loads, but they've kind of gone for the Brighton approach of signing players that no one's really heard of 
and then just trying to make it work. And yeah. they've got Graham Potter. So looking at the big money that they spent, um, they've signed a left back from Villarreal for 16 million called Estupinian, which Estupinian, I... who played really well in his debut a couple of weeks ago. Um, really like the sign of the, the looks of him. And then a player from um, the Paraguayan division, Julio Enquiso, um, as a he's a forward, 18 years old, 10 million. That's a lot of money, but given the way that Brighton transformed players, I think that's a good deal. And then also signing Billy Gilmore from Chelsea, 21-year-old. That's a really solid signing. I like that. I do. And knowing Chelsea, they'll probably sign him back in four years' time for about 70, 80 million. So I yep. think that's just a good investment. And then also they signed um, a winger from Denmark, from Nordsjylland. Once again, don't know anything about him, but that is Brighton's model. Sign young players you don't know much about, and then they'll turn them into quality players. And they've done that almost yeah, like a exactly. conveyor belt recently. So, exactly. And I suppose if we're talking about the money that the transfer window as a whole, we've got to look at their outgoings. And I think this is the big point. Cucurella out for just shy of 60 million, Basuma just under 30 million, and then Neil Malpai for 10 million to Everton. That's good transfer business. So they've gone, made about a £60 million profit and bought in some youngsters. And clearly it's not affected their squad because they're performing well. So it's, I'm going to say a B from Brighton because I think they've lost some experience, Premier League experience. But at the same time, it's not really affected them. And I think we can only really judge their window depending on how these players kick on. And they are young, so it might even be a couple of seasons down the line before we see the best out of them. Yeah, I think this is, you know, if they've got a, a strong squad there and it's clearly performing right right now under under Graham Potter. They've sort of assessed sort of key areas that they want to um strengthen or rather replace. So Billy Gilmore looks more to be not necessarily like to like for Basuma, but he'll definitely fit in that hole in the midfield. And they still have money in the bank realistically from the Cucurella and the, and the Basuma deals. So who knows, they might still be active in January, whether or not you know, we always look at January as, as a difficult window to always do business in, but I can imagine that Brighton might be able to do a couple of signings there to sort of bolster their attempts at, you know, we're speaking potentially about European spots here to sort of further that that ambition. Um, so, yeah, I, I think really solid uh, sign uh, window from Brighton, obviously losing two big players, but I, like I said, I don't think it's affected them at all, really. So, yeah, I, I agree with your B, B grade there. Mm. And another team that signs them young and develops them, or that's part of their rebuild under Vieira, is Crystal Palace. Main talking points from the window, I guess, is they've got rid of some of their older players that are into their 30s, so getting a little bit of pocket money for Christian Benteke, uh, Cheku Kiyate going out on a free, Martin Kelly also yeah. going out to West Brom, so another older player who's come to the end of his contract. And similar to Brighton, they've brought in some younger players that I know not much about, um, in Jake Ducore, Chris Richards, and then from Derby, they've signed Malcolm Iboyewe. And once again, all young players. And then with the addition of bringing Sam Johnston in as a backup yeah. goalkeeper from West Brom, not a huge amount of money spent, but as part of Vieira's build, I don't think he needed to add much to that squad. And where he has, he's had two older players, or couple three or older players leave 
with who had a lot of experience, but then brought in some youngsters. I think it's really good for them. Yeah, yeah, I got I got no sort of additions to that. I think you know, Vieira is just starting to gradually mould a squad in his way that he wants Palace to play. Like you mentioned, the younger players coming in, older players going out, just sort of really trying to get his own sort of spin on it. Um, I I can't really say too much about this this Palace. I think it's been an okay window, uh, nothing to sort of scream home about. But like you said, I don't think they really needed to at this point. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably be happy with either a C plus or a B minus there. Yeah, I agree with you about the same. So, um, yeah, I think we're, once again, it's one of those, we'll see how the players get on in down a couple of seasons, but they've not spent a huge amount, so it won't be any great loss. And then a team that has spent a fair bit more is Everton um, under Frank Lampard. So they've spent just over £70 million. But in there, I think there is some good transfer business. So they sold Richarlison for £50 million. I think his head was turned. He was always going to go. Admittedly, I think it left them short going forward. And you can see that in their reliance on Anthony Gordon. But then also out the door, they've got sent Deli Ali out, who negative influence. Andre Gomez seemed to be injured quite a lot. Uh, Jean-Philippe Gumabin, he's been injured a lot since he joined. And then they've gone and bought in some spent a fair bit of money on Onana and first couple of games he's looked pretty good. Dwight McNeil from Burnley, 21 million was quite a lot. I'm not completely sold by him at the moment, but he is only 22 years old. Neil Malpide, they did need a striker since Calvert Lewin's injured. I think that's not awful business. James Garner from Man United, 10 million for a youngster who relatively unproven. I'll wait to see what happens with him before I judge that. But I think their big business there is bolstering their defence with James Tarkovsky and Connor Cody, two defenders with huge amount of Premier League experience. 29 years old, so they're not going to be around forever, but I think that's both two really strong characters to bring into their squad, and that'll be a really strong defensive partnership. Yeah, I think you, you're you probably looking, maybe a couple of years ago, looking at Cody and Tarkovsky as, you know, eyeing them up potentially as a, an England centre-back pairing. Um, so really like those two signings. I think James Tarkovsky, like Ben Mee, was always going to come back up into the Prem. Onana, really like that uh, signing. And then they've brought um, Adrissi Gay back in from PSG for a couple of million. Um, someone who has obviously played for Everton previously and when he first came in, looked really solid in the centre of the park. So they've done some good business there. Results haven't shown it so far, but they are unbeaten in four. However, they're not managed to get their first win yet. But in terms of the signings that they have made and in comparison to signings that they have made in previous seasons, this looks more sensible business as opposed to just splashing money around on players that just don't have an effect whatsoever. So I think this is solid business for Emerson and I will give it a B. That yeah, I, I think very late on those two later additions of uh, Connor Cody bringing him in and Neil Malpai, they've identified they've got some injuries. They need to bolster the squad in those areas. So yeah, that last minute kind of business kind of pushed them up a grade or two. So yeah, I'd agree with you on a B on that. It's just whether Frank Lampard's a good enough manager to get more out of them. Yeah, and so a team that seems to have strengthened all over the park is Fulham, and I think they've done 
typically what a team does when they do get promoted from the championship is they do go out and kind of strengthen all over the park and maybe something that Scott Parker thought he would get out of the Bournemouth transfer window. So big signings and big names here for Fulham. So Paulinia from Sporting for just shy of 20 million and Andres Pereira, who already looks like he's influencing the team. Other players who names big names that we'd recognise um, Babu from Wolfsburg, a right back. Carlos Vinicius, who was at Spurs. Bernd Leno from Arsenal. The return of William to the Premier League on a free transfer. Mm. And Dan James, a loan transfer from Leeds. And then Shane Duffy from Brighton. And I suppose one of the highlights was uh, Kazawa from PSG on a loan, which yeah, he's a player with Champions League experience. They've strengthened everywhere. And yeah, they have almost every position. They've got pretty much bought in what could be a new back four, a couple of good central midfielders and some good forwards and a goalkeeper. It's almost as if they've gone for a complete refresh and they're getting some good results out of it so far. Yeah, I think, like you said, they've gone for a bit of a refresh and I don't think they've gone on to the extent that Nottingham Forest have done, but they have strengthened in most areas. Bert Leno looks like he's as as you'd expect, making some real big impacts between the sticks, as he's now got yeah, um, been given this start in the um in between the sticks. Pereira, as you mentioned, looking to um, have an impact in, uh, in the midfield there, um, and yeah, I I can't really see anything wrong with this um, Fulham window. I think it's exactly what they needed to strengthen all areas as a team sort of coming up um, from the Championship. And I think, is this the window or is this the squad now that gets Fulham out of that back and forth, back and forth sort of history that they've been going on, riding sort of back and forth between Premiership and Championship? It looks that way because I've got a pretty decent start. So I will give this um, window probably a, I think a B plus or an A minus, I think is that's a good, that's good business from Marco Silva and his, and his, um, and his board. I yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. And yeah. yeah, I think while Fulham before have spent a lot of money when they've come up, I feel this seems to be a bit more focused and a bit more sensible. And maybe that is Marco Silva's influence. They've got a combination of Premier League and international experience that they're throwing in there. Looking at the likes of Shane Duffy, Dan James, um, Issa Diop, a fair amount of minutes in the Premier League between them all, which is helpful. And then the rest of them all have Champions League experience. So it's just about now Marco Silva getting them all to gel. But I'd agree with you on that. Um, definitely, definitely a minimum of B plus for me. And they've had Mitrovic at the top of the park, who's been there for a while now, and he seems to be nailing it for them. So good on Fulham there. And next up, a team which has made a good start to the Premier League season and a team that I think some people thought would get relegated or be in danger is then Leeds so the headlines from this is that Rafinha out the door to Barcelona Calvin Phillips out the door to Man City both for a fair amount of money but then similar model to Palace similar model to Brighton brought in a lot of young players and it seems to be working for them so far yeah, absolutely. Sinestra in his last couple of games has bagged a couple of goals. It looks like he's got a good eye for a finish. Aronson is having a big impact in the um, 
in the forward line. Um, knows Jesse Marsh quite well from his Red Bull Salzburg days, as well as Rasmus Christensen. Tyler Adams also having a big impact, uh, who they brought in from RB Leipzig. So, yeah, I, I think this is a, this is one where, obviously, they've lost two big-name players and they've brought in players who have immediately come in and had an impact, which is always a good sign of a great window. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they some teams are poor at spending their money when there's a big transfer. So you look at the likes of Tottenham when they sold Gareth Bale, they spent that money pretty appallingly and only really got oh, one yeah. good player out of that in the grand scheme of things. Like Ericsson was in that window and Lamela as well. Yeah. Possibly they're two good additions. The rest all kind of flopped. But yep. they got in just shy of 100 million from those two transfers. And then they've spent pretty much all of that out on a bunch of youngsters, covered more of the pitch in terms of positions and under Marsh, good start so far when he's not being sent off at least because he's got anger issues. <laughs> but yeah, good start, good window. Um, Once again, I think a team that is hard to judge until you see how these players kick on, but players in their early 20s or late teens. So they've got a couple of 18-year-olds in there, some 21-year-olds, 22s, 23s. Um, I'm happy to give them a, a solid B. Yeah, I'm, I'm even tempted just purely because some of those names that have come in just had an immediate impact. I'm I'm very tempted to give them an A. Oh, um, with that, you're going to deal out your first A, like outright A, because you've had some A minuses. I had an A minus. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going to give. A, I'm going to give Leeds an A. Like you said, it it it'll, time will show with this Leeds squad whether or not they do stay up. But in terms of an immediate impact of names that you have coming in, and obviously Rafinha and Calvin Phillips were always most likely going to go this year. I, I think it's good business. So yeah, why wouldn't why wouldn't I? Fair enough. And a team where there won't be many changing of faces Ooh. in the dressing room. Oh, I do feel a little bit for Brendan Rogers here. And he has taken all the flack himself for their poor results recently, particularly after their game this weekend against Brighton where they took a very early lead and it all kind of fell apart. In terms of outgoings, Wesley Fofana made it very obvious mm. that he wanted to go and he went. Good amount of money for him, 72 million. They got him in for a pinch of that uh, a while ago. And then coming in, um, well, Anyone? <laughs> well, they got, well, it's a bit of a poor show. They got. A 32-year-old goalkeeper in Alex Smithies from Cardiff as a free transfer. And then a Belgian from Stade Reims, uh, Wout Fais, as a centre-back who's 24, cost them 15 million. Looking at their results, they would have been hoping for more to kind of keep that just outside the top six position that they've kind of had for the last couple of seasons. And their results have reflected a poor transfer window, haven't they? Yeah, this this just this is a poor transfer window, really, for Brendan Rodgers. Um, it's not necessarily I, his I, fault, mind. No, I, I like you said, I, I do really feel for him because he's sort of almost having the sort of uh, rug swept up from underneath underneath his feet a little bit, just because he had he's had a good number of couple of seasons at Leicester where he's enjoyed sort of good success, winning the FA Cup and some good uh, European runs. 
but then all of a sudden, I, I, like I said, like we, I think we said in the in the preview pod, I don't know exactly what's happening behind the scenes at Leicester, but it just suddenly seems that though all of a sudden there's just no money coming in, um, and it's starting to reflect, I think, a little bit in the results because clearly things aren't going well at Leicester right now. But yeah, for me, this just this reeks of just this this reeks of a poor transfer window for me. I, I'm very tempted to give this an E. Oh, I, I was going to go just straight out for the F. Because well, you're going to go for F. They've lost one of their main centre-backs, not really replaced them. They've got all sorts of issues. I think almost at times, the fact that Madison and Tillemans have constantly been linked all window and they haven't gone just means that this season, I think they're both coming towards the end of contracts. How committed are they? I think the bright spot, the slight bright spot is that they've managed to keep hold of them. Um, True, but how much? I suppose towards how the long will they be? Yeah, yeah, towards the end of the season when it's getting tough, they're going to have to put in the miles in their legs to win games. Yep. How committed are they if they've kind of got half an eye on? Oh well, someone else is going to sign me in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So yeah, I do feel Brendan Rodgers has been dealt a bit of a duff hand there. Yeah, not good. Um, and a team that has splashed the cash is Newcastle. So. I think we can straight away and go Nick Pope, really good signing for them. Yep. Matt Target, um, this was off the back of a loan, wasn't it? So he was there on loan at the end of last season. So I think getting him in as a £15 million signing, really good. Sven Botman, a player that they eyed up in January and didn't get through. But I think that's a really good deal. And then I suppose the big name very late on in the window is... Alexander Isak from Real Sociedad. And that's a lot of money they spent on him. A fee about 63 million. Obviously, this could be with all the bonuses and add-ons. Um, but he seems to have had an immediate impact. They've built in a good way, I think, some good additions. Pope, really good keeper, target, good left back. Sven Botman, uh 22 years old, so it's got everything going for him in that regard. And Isak again, 22 years old and a proven goal scorer in La Liga. Um, I'm giving Newcastle an A for this window. Yeah, 100%. I, I completely agree with that. You know, I, Isaac has, has come in and just hit the ground running. He looks some some player. He's going to be causing troubles for Premier League defences up and down the country, I'm pretty sure. Nick Pope, you know, what else can you expect from Nick Pope? He's coming and just sort of completely just bedded himself in to that uh, Newcastle um, goalkeeper's spot. Sven Botman has been linked with think probably Chelsea at some point and higher sort of other other clubs sort of beyond at, at this point in time Newcastle sort of sort of reach but that's really sort of solid business to bring him in as well so I yeah I, I completely agree with with the um the, the A grade there I'm, I'm going to join you on that nice and I think Eddie Howe is really building the team how he likes it he's been given the funds he's targeted the players I like how they didn't just rush into signing a striker this window. They must have had their eye on Isak for a bit and then went in with the big money. Um, yeah, good signing for them. I think that's a really strong window. So I think we might have to do an extended version of the podcast because the next team... Oh, God. I think it might almost be easier to say who they haven't signed. So let me take a deep breath. And I'll go through all their transfers, or at least most of their transfers, mostly the big names, and we'll go from there. 
So on loan transfer, they got in Norik Bardet from Stad René and Dean Henson from Man United on loan. Then free transfers, they picked up Wayne Hennessy, Sheikh Kiate, and Jesse Lingard, all Premier League experienced players. Then big signings, they got in Morgan Gibbs-White from Wolves, Awoini from Union Berlin, Nico Williams, Liverpool, Emmanuel Dennis, Watford, Mangala, a central midfielder from Stuttgart, Moussa Niakete from Mainz, who's a centre-back. They've got a right-back, Julian Biancone from Troyes. They've got a Huddersfield centre-midfielder, Lewis O'Brien. They've got Swiss captain Romeo Freuler from Atalanta. They've got Bayern Munich left-back Omar Richards. Renan Lodi, the left-back from Atletico Madrid on the loan. Ouijo Wang from Bordeaux, who's a centre-forward. Uh, former Wolves player Willy Bowley, a centre-back. Harry Trafolo, a left-back from Huddersfield, and Josh Bowler from Blackpool, who is a right winger. They signed a lot of players. I suppose I've only just realised, why on earth have they signed three left-backs? Just because. Fair enough. But I think that's just that's the um, that was the attitude it seems like from Forest this, this window, maybe just because. Fair enough. We covered this in previous pod about the amount well, you covered this in a stats corner about the amount Forrest have spent. They've spent a lot of money. In all fairness, on a lot of players, it's one big gamble, but they I wouldn't say there's anyone that they've been completely mugged off for for the money at this point. No, I think in terms of money spent on individual players, the only one that really stands out for me is Morgan Gibbs-White. Um, with the total, I don't think this. I think is including add-ons. We're looking at four, potentially forty-two, around forty-two million pounds. Yeah, that is with add-ons, yeah. But I think for the rest of them, I we don't know exactly sure the whole ins and outs of the Jesse Lingard agreement, whether or not what sort of contract he's on, uh, what sort of wage structure he's got. But I think, like you said, in terms of the actual individual payments of. Um, to individual players bringing transfers in I don't see any sort of mishaps or just eye raising um, amounts of money being spent but just in the totals more than anything else that is just the incredible thing here that for Forest are doing I think yeah. 22 I think at point of recording was the total number of incomings that they've made which is a Premier League record beating Palaces from 2013 which was 18 I think if I, if I remember off the top of my head so they bought in a lot it's just whether or not this can all gel because effectively this is a big refresh button for Forest and they're trying to stick together a squad that can compete at the Premier League level it's a bit of a risk I think but I think only time will tell whether or not it's going to work so I'm not really that keen on bringing tons of players in, so I'm I'd probably go for a C plus, maybe B minus. Yeah, I would, I think definitely looking at it, they did need to build a new squad, but the amount of players it's based on their current results. Yeah, I think B minus is completely fair. A lot of players, a mix of Premier League experience with a fair amount of people that we wouldn't know. So you never know. Maybe they've got the best scouting network in the league. Um, good luck to them with that. 
And then another team that perhaps hasn't signed a huge amount of players, but the players that they have brought in have had an impact so far, and that is Southampton. So, main big talking points. Uh, Bazuna, goalkeeper from City. He's gone straight into their starting lineup. Mara from Bordeaux. Once again, almost had an instant influence there. Uh, Romeo Lavia from Man City. Straight into their team. Good impact. Um, last minute deal for Coletta Carr. Oh, sorry. He's Croatian, so more Coletta Char from Marseille. Bella Kotchap from Bosham. Joe Aribo from Rangers. And then Juan Larios from Man City, another youngster. Um, a couple of departures Shane Longon, Fraser Forster, Oreo Romeo, Jan Bednarek, Jack Stevens, all players that have been part of that squad for quite a long time. Um, also, I've also seen that they've signed uh, Ainsley Maitland Niles on loan as well. Yes. That's a good window for them, I think, I would say. Yeah. I think a lot of youngsters, very much a refresh, but a lot of them would come straight into the side and proven themselves in the first instance. Yeah, these signings that have come in doesn't initially scream off the top of my head that it's a squad that's about to lose another 9-0 game. Um, yeah, like you said, I think Aribo coming in has made an instant impact. Mara has made an instant impact. Lavia certainly has. His strike at the weekend was incredible. Um. Yeah, I, there's nothing much really more I can say about Southampton. I think it's just exactly what they needed to do. They've got rid of a couple of the deadwoods that were sort of lying around in the squad. And I think Ralph could... I mean, they find themselves 12th at the moment after six games, which I think, considering we had them as one of the favourites potentially to go down, is a really solid start. And like I said, only time will tell with the squads. But it's it's got good signs already that these players, like I said, like I said with Leeds, when players come in and make an instant impact, it's only really good signs that obviously the scouting network is doing its job and, and bringing in players that they can, rather they can target players that they know will come in and make an immediate impact. And these players certainly have. So I, I think B plus really for Southampton. I think that's good solid work. Yeah, I think probably about the same in my opinion. There is... They've had the instant impact. I suppose it just depends long-term how well that pans out for them. Um, but good combination of young players. Really milked Manchester City's youth setup for some of them. But yeah, good on them. Uh, and then possibly the biggest spender out of the other 14 is West Ham United. So they haven't bought lots. But I think my initial impression is that they bought in a lot of strength. So as we covered, we've covered some of these already in the yep. um, in the preview podcast. But I think a lot of these were done since, and I think there's a lot to be looking forward to. So Alphonse Ariola from PSG, Flynn Downs from Swansea, Tilo Kera from PSG, Emerson from Chelsea, Maxwell Cornet from Burnley, Ney Fagred from Stade Rene. Jean-Lucas Scamacca from Sassuolo and the big transfer that came in very late in the window was Lucas Paqueta from Lyon for a fair sum of money. So West Ham had a window where they had a lot of, I want to say squad deadwood left because 
They relied. They had a very thin squad last season. Probably one of the teams out of the Premier League that used the fewest players um, across the whole season. But they've brought in some really promising options, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And it looks from the outset that these players are effectively coming in as upgrades in a lot of positions that West Ham were probably in, in need for. I look at the signings of like Paqueta for 50-odd million quids and if he can build up a partnership between him and Rice, that's that looks quite tasty, I think, from the outset of it. Um, Skamako, if he gets up and running, scoring goals, yet to so far in the league, but it's still early days for him. Maxwell Corney had an unfortunate goal disallowed at the weekend, as we've mentioned already. And but the impact that he made for Burnley um, during last campaign was, you know, clear to see that he's a, he's a class class act in the Premier League. We've mentioned already in previous podcasts that these signings that are coming for West Ham might take a little bit of time to bed in. But if you look at those names, they're just really solid signings. And as I've mentioned previously, that they're all internationals and have come in with a great amount of experience. So I, I really like this window from West Ham. It just needs the squad in general to start performing better, I think, before we see the results. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've probably seen more out of some of them in um, the Conference League so far. So Skamaka has got a goal in each of his games in the Conference League. I think Aguerd was unfortunate to get injured so early on, but in doing so, they then brought in Kera because they needed defensive cover. And looking at him so far, on the face of it, you go, oh, well, he did score an own goal against Tottenham and give away a penalty, which was a silly penalty against Brighton. But he's been a really good addition to the squad. And I think Moyes picked his play as well, didn't necessarily rush into a lot of these deals, even though, from the start, West Ham fans um, were going, oh, we need to add eight additions. And in all fairness, they added pretty much that. But they've been really solid squad. And I can see once they get ticking, this squad will be able to compete up the Premier League higher than they are at the moment. I think they'll be in and around that area of the 8th, ninth, 10th kind of region. And they'll have a good European campaign. I'm going to go with an A-minus right now because I think on the names value, Really impressive. Just waiting for the results. Yeah, I will probably downgrade that a little bit. Probably go to a B plus, just because we haven't seen the results just as yet. But like I said, I I expect good things from this West Ham side because I do like this window. It's just that we haven't seen the results just as as of yet. I think that's fair. And then finally, um, Wolves, an interesting transfer window for them. They got rid of. Three fairly big names in their squad. So, Willy Bolive to Forest, Dendonka to Villa, and Gibbs White to Forest also. Um, that's some Premier League experience gone out the door. But then the players they bought in, they spent a fair amount of money. So, Mateus Nunez from Sporting for around about 40 million. Uh, Guedes from Valencia, a really good left winger for about 30. Then, 20 million for Nathan Collins from Burnley. He's a young centre back, so good, good youth prospect. And then they signed Sasa Kalajic from Stuttgart, a centre forward. And then they confirmed 
Huang's loan deal by signing yep. him for 15 million. I suppose the biggest talking point for their window is that they signed a centre forward because Jimenez can be unreliable in terms of injury. And then their new guy gets injured pretty much straight away, which I think very much puts a downer on the window, don't you think? It does, but then we're seeing reports of who they are potentially linked with on a... He's done trial runs with Wolves, apparently, and obviously he's a free free agent as of this moment, otherwise he wouldn't be able to come in. Diego Costa. He's the such old a, bastard himself, Diego Costa. He's such a rogue character. I absolutely love it. It adds character to this squad. A squad that I don't... It's a fine squad. They obviously do well in the Premier League, but I'm not mad about them. I don't really know them much as in, like, in terms of I don't yeah, know much you, about them individually. You don't really get attached to them, do you? No. Um, but he would be... Sorry. I'd love to see him back in the Premier League. I really like his style of play. I like his shithousery. Um, it's all very beautiful. Obviously, that he might not be up to that standard. They might not sign him, but I think it would be a good option for some attacking cover. But ignoring the Costa deal, they spent a good amount of money. But I'm not wowed by any of it. But that, I suppose, is just wait and wait and see. But I would yeah. maybe give them a C at most. But that is mostly because they signed signed a new striker and he got injured straight away, which is dead unfortunate. Yeah, that is unfortunate. I think we've mentioned in, in previous episodes that this looks like it's going to be a window for Wolves where Bruno Lager is basically just... He's had his first season in charge and he did okay. This is now his chance to effectively mould the squad in the shape that he wants. And that goes to show in the fact that he's sort of ticked off or allowed Connor Cody to also leave on loan to Everton, which was a surprising one. Yeah, and he's your club captain as well. Yeah, Cody and Bolly both going. They were like two key starting centre backs for Wolves in my mind. Yeah, Um, and to see both them go, that's quite a big deal for them. Yeah, I I think Bruno's putting quite a lot on the line. I think with this season, so it will it will it like like we said with with many of of these, and it it was always the way time will only tell with the squad. But I. I'm not immediately wowed by Wolves. If they do bring in Diego Costa, then by all means, that you know, simply stunning signing. But I, I, I sort of agree with you. Sort of a C plus. Um, really, I'm, I'm not wowed by it. And that finishes off us grading all the other fourteen. Hopefully, Leicester's low grade won't be reflective of their season, and they'll be able to turn it around. If not for anything, but for Brendan Rodgers' future as Leicester manager and then so next up moving on to goal of the week goal of the week so tom we've had game week five and game week six to look at the goals for um but i think more than anything at this point we have the benefit for a new feature of disallowed goals of the week so we'll start some bangers so we'll start off with these and then we'll go into the real awards. But please tell me, what were the better goal out of these three? We've got McAllister's absolute rocket against Leicester. Once again, not really sure why that was disallowed. Coutinho's thunderbastard against Man City. Not really sure why that was disallowed. And Cornet's peach into the top corner, which should have sealed West Ham's draw at Stamford Bridge. 
Once again, not sure why that was disallowed. Which of those three non-counting goals do you think should be the disallowed goal of the week? For the disallowed goal of the week, um, I'm going to say McAllister because, like you said, an absolute rocket, an absolute thunderbolt. And just no idea really why that's not been given. Obviously, we've discussed that um, previously. So, yeah, just unfortunate. But congratulations to Alexis McAllister on your disallowed goal of the week. (laughs) And then going into the proper award, I guess. Uh, game week five. So a couple of goals that were particularly good on the eye. So we had Suchek's goal against Spurs. Brilliant ball around the corner from Mikel Antonio. Little flick. Suchek touch under control and put it past Larissa at near post. Zaha, great goal against Brentford. Levia for Southampton against Chelsea in their victory. And Sinistera against Everton compounding Frank Lampard's woes. What's your goal of the week out of those three, Tom, for game week five? It's a difficult one because there are a lot of decent strikes in there. I think the big thing out of this week's goal of the week competition, because we will have also two, is that there are no Newcastle players being involved, which is a first uh, on the other 14 podcast. Um, it's true. Although Isak did score a pretty good goal against Liverpool. I'll give him that. He did, but it's not one of mine that I, I thought of. Not, it's not on the shortlist. I'll put no, it that way. It, it didn't make the shortlist, no. Like you mentioned with the Suchek goal, Antonio, absolutely lovely flick around the corner, sets him up nicely for the goal. Zaha is a great control in sort of close quarters and then just be able to sort of ping it round um, into the far corner. Lovely goal. But I think Lavia's goal against Chelsea is the one for me that just is such a pure strike. And for the result that Southampton then went on to get against Chelsea, I think just sums up what a good goal that was and a great team performance from Southampton. Yeah, absolutely. And a complete worthy winner. And in game week six then, Tom, we had 23 goals from the other 14 teams. Um, And that's not including three wrongfully disallowed, if not four wrongfully disallowed goals. So we've got, I think, in terms of shortlist, although McAllister scored an unbelievable disallowed goal, he then followed that up with a peach of a free kick. Mitrovic against Spurs, giving them a faint glimmer of hope at the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Then Ivan Tony, he scored a hat-trick and two of them were gorgeous. And then Billing against Forrest to get Bournemouth back in the game there. How are you going to pick between all of those? You know what? It's so difficult because individually so it's so good. Individually, there's such stunning strikes. Tony free kick. I, 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 oh, it's just it's so difficult to choose between. It's it's unbelievable. I think I mentioned in the build up to the episodes that or sort of off camera that I mentioned Billing as Forest, but then I'm sort of looking at McAllister's strike against Leicester. The fact that they had one disallowed wrongfully, and the fact that it was just so nonchalant, just last sort of in the dying embers of the game, just setting up on a free kick and then just sticking one straight past Danny Ward. I I just love the nonchalance about it. So I'm going to change my mind. I was going to go for Billing, but sort of thinking about it again, I'm going to go for McAllister against Leicester because I think he deserves it after having one wrongfully disallowed. And that is a very worthy winner of goal of the week. Well done, McAllister, on your double. So 
it seems fitting that after doing goal of the week, we've now got listener question about a striker. So we've got a question in from George from all the way down under in Australia. So George from Australia (laughs) said, he said, I'd like to know your opinions and thoughts on the best proper striker in the other 14. Is it between Mitrovic and Tony? So, Tom, thoughts? Who is the proper striker or the best proper striker in the other 14 right now? That's such a hard call between two fantastic strikers. You know, Mitch, the big question point coming from Mitrovic this this summer was whether or not he could recreate what he was because he was doing bits in the championship whether or not he could recreate that in the Premier yeah, League because he got the obscene records didn't he yeah he got yeah. the obscene records he's in done, the championship that was it I, I can't remember these was it like 40 43 44 goals it, in, in a in a single it was bonkers it was mad it was yeah it was even for the championship it was um, an obscene amount of goals and there's always been the because he hasn't necessarily performed when he once when he was at Newcastle and Fulham in their previous time up in the Premier League. So there was always that lingering doubt whether or not he could make that step up. But the way he started this this year, you'd say he's just carried on from from last year. And I think I, I mentioned this in the preview pod um, that goals do give strikers confidence and he's got a lot of goals to go off from last year so I think it's just he's going off exactly where he uh, left let off last year as for Tony again got off to a fantastic start and his, his hat trick against Leeds just pretty much sums him up you know he's got everything about him you know he can take a free he can take a free kick he can take a spot kick and he's just got a great eye for goal so oh it's so difficult to oh, I think it's quite fitting to talk about um, like like a real proper striker, considering we've had many seasons where the teams at the top of the table haven't necessarily had them. So Man City didn't have one, Liverpool didn't, and now they've both turned to having like out and out forwards in Haaland and Nunez. Um, while Tony last season was playing really well, getting goals, and Mitrovic obviously in the Championship had this phenomenal run. Um, between the two, though. It's a really cruel question. Um, I have to say, I think maybe just from looking at him without any stats backing that, I think maybe Tony has a bit more variety. Mitrovic is really good and really strong in the box. And that's where I think he's got most of his goals this season. While Tony has been able to mix it up. If you look at even look at his um, hat trick this week, um, he had the great free kick, the great effort from where Melier came bolting off his line he took his time composed and then played it like almost like a dink over the defenders I think perhaps Tony has a bit more to him so I'm gonna say at this point I think Tony is the better forward out of the two of them um obviously we do have another a number of other good forwards in the other 14 that kind of fulfill that role obviously Calvert-Lewin unfortunately has been injured Ollie Watkins I think had a okay season last season and then I think Patrick Bamford was unlucky with the amount of injuries he's had last couple of seasons and then we've got the new guy on the block Isak from Newcastle he might be a contender to compete with Mitrovic and Tony but at this point given the start to the season I'm going to say that I think Tony is the better out and out striker in the other 14 at the moment yeah I've I've picked up the stats and Mitrovic uh, has one uh, more in terms of goals, uh, 
He's got six goals as opposed to Tony's five, but Tony has a couple of assists and has his five goals from a better sort of conversion percentage as opposed to Mitrovic. He has Mitrovic has six goals and 27 shots. Uh, Tony has five from 15. Obviously got the one penalty scored, same as Mitrovic. And Tony has the assist, so he's got more in terms of his team play. And I think there's always a question mark about whether or not Mitrovic's discipline is something that might let him down. He hasn't been sent off yet, as far as I'm aware, but he has two yellow cards already, as opposed to Tony has one. So I I think, yeah, I, I, I'm very much in agreement, I think. I think Tony plays well in that Brentford system. Mitrovic just knows how to get goals in that Fulham side. But whether or not he's a team striker, if that makes sense, as opposed to Tony just, just gels well with that side. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, no, it does. Um, and uh, I think in the preview pod, we said about both these strikers that these teams would probably be fine if both of these players are scoring goals. And so far, both team, both of these teams are fine yeah. as both these players are scoring goals. So um, yeah, they've they both had phenomenal starts. And um, great question from the listener, George. There. So yeah, thank you very much for that, Here's George. Yeah, thank you very much. And probably the bit of the podcast you're looking least forward to. So oh, our, our our fantastic Fab Four predictions. Wow, not so Fab. Well, not for you, but a stellar week from myself, and I will gloat about it. I'm, I'm so, pretty sure you will. Last week, our picks were Palace v Brentford. I correctly predicted a 1-1 there, while you put a 2 on Palace win, getting you nothing and me three. Um, Neither of us saw Leeds and Everton playing out a draw. We thought either team were going to snatch all three points. I got to about the goals, if that's any sort of sellers. It's not. Uh, Forest v Bournemouth. I saw it being a Bournemouth win. You saw it being a 1-1 draw. So I grabbed myself a point there. Brighton v Leicester. You saw Leicester maybe getting a cheeky win with a 2-1 win. I thought Brighton would have been 2-0. Turns out it was an absolute blockbuster game and Brighton won 5-2. So after the game week 5 and 6 Fab 4 predictions, that puts you on five points and I've had a great week there with five points bringing me up to a total of 11 so congratulations all I have to say is thank you for downloading and listening to this week's episode of the other 14 podcast with Tom and myself please subscribe and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice also do recommend us to any friends and family We are now available on all good podcast platforms, including Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. All I have to say now is it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And we'll see you next week on the other 14 podcast.